Okay. Um, we're going to do a quick Torah study, quicker than I thought it was going to be because it's just a little bit later than I expected it to be. Um, so in the Shabbat bulletin, um, this was sent out, and I encourage people to print it before Shabbat. I hope you have it. Um, and we're going to do a quick text study from Parshat Sav. I want to start the text study by sharing with you that sometimes when I'm leading davening at Daily Minion, part of me wants to sing out loud on the days that Tachanun has recited, Shomer Yisrael, Shomer, Shomer Yisrael, Shemor Sherit Yisrael. Sometimes I want to sing it, and most times that I want to sing it, I don't. People in Daily Minion who might be watching may have no idea that that's happening inside of me. There are two main reasons why I don't when I don't. The reason I would want to sing it, by the way, is because it brings me comfort to sing those words to music. It gives me intentionality and kavanah and makes my prayer experience more prayerful when I sing them, when I sing just about anything versus mumble them. The two reasons I don't are, number one, I don't want to come off in tefillah as having what Jewish texts sometimes refer to as yohara, pride. Anything that could smack of, I'm more religious than you, I'm more intent in my prayers than you, I'm more from than you. And sometimes when you're in a davening place where the standard is to not sing things out loud, if you sang things out loud, it could be understood as if you're trying to kind of outdo or outflank those who are just satisfied singing, saying it quickly. And I internalize that. And in case there's even a tiny piece of my intentionality that wants to sing it out loud, not because it'll enrich my prayer, but because I, so I can show that I know the tune and that I can sing the tune well and that I'm somehow more prayerful than others who are not singing it, I hold back. I also hold back because I have a sense that there are some people in the room who don't want it to be sung, who will be frustrated if it's sung, who come to Daily Minion, they want the prayers to be over rather quickly. Not that they're not interested in praying, but they want the prayers to be over quickly. And my even though I know that my motivations are pure, out of a sense of what the kahal wants, because always as a prayer leader, you're adjusting your own individual notions and needs of prayer with the needs of the kahal, I hold back. Hold that thought for a second. Hold that thought. And now let's do a dive into a intricacy of one of the first words of Parshat Sav. You can see this visually um, both uh, on the sheet that I have, but if you have the chumash, you can open it back as well. In the second verse of the Parsha, Tzav, from which the Parsha gets its name, Tzav et Haron ve'et Lemor, God is speaking to Moses and saying to Moses, command Aaron and your brother, saying, Zot Torah Ta'ola, this is how the Ola sacrifice, a sacrifice that would be completely consumed on the altar, is to be dealt with. Hi ha'olah, yes, that is the very olah. Al-mokda 
al hamizbeach, which is on the mokda, on some kind of a like a, um, a frame on the altar. Kol halayla, all night, ad haboker till the morning. Hamizbeach to Kadbo, and the fire on the altar keeps lit the whole night. It's not on the sheet, but it's in your chumash. The mem of the word mokda is small. Some of you know that there are a good number of letters in the Torah that are smaller than the rest of them, as the scribe writes it, and there are a good number of letters that are bigger than the rest of them, and no one knows exactly why. But rabbis throughout the ages have tried to find hints in the largeness and the smallness of certain letters into important lessons for us. You may remember that Rabbi Lucas did a whole series of this um, in, uh, in the last few years that he was with us. His uh, taste of Torahs, whenever he would write them for the Shabbat Bulletin, would be focused on those small and large letters um, based on a wonderful book that he had that went deep into them. The Mem is small. First, in order to understand why the mem might be small, we have to know what the word mokda means. Look at source two. Tractate Yoma, the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Yoma, page 33a. Amarmar, the master said, Ma'aracha gdola kodemet l'ma'aracha shnia shel The large arrangement, ma'aracha is an arrangement or a setup. The large arrangement on the altar, kodemet would come before l'ma'aracha shnia the smaller arrangement of the incense. So there was a place where the actual meat of the sacrifice would be set up. That would be a large arrangement, a marachagdola. And there would be a place, a smaller arrangement, where just the spices and the frankincense and the myrrh would be offered up. And what we're learning is that the large one would come before the small one. Minalan, how do we know this? Ditanya, as we learn in an earlier source, a braita, quoting the book of Vayukra, our verse, it says, our verse, he ha'ola, that is the ola, al-mokda, al-hamizbeach, kol halayla. It's the ola on the mokda, which I told you before was kind of a setup or arrangement, on the altar all the night. And the Talmud says, zo ma'aracha gdola. The mokda, you may not know the Hebrew word, but the Talmud is defining it. The mokda is the large arrangement. Okay, so now we have it defined. Ve'esh ha'mizbeach tu kadbo. And the fire going all night, that is the smaller arrangement of the incenses. So the Talmud has done two things for us here in this section. Number one, it's told us what the word mokda means. It is the larger of the two arrangements. And it's told us that when you're setting up the altar, you set up the big one first and then the small one. Okay. On its own, it's only significant if you're setting up the temple for sacrifices. But it ends up becoming fodder for other midrash material. Hold that in abeyance for a second. Go to another piece of Talmud, Brachot Lamadalid, uh, the 34th page of Brachot. Some of you who are doing Daf Shvu'i may remember this from, I don't know, a few weeks ago. Stuart, I hope you're, Stuart, and all of you are still doing Daf Yomi, Kolakabot to you for doing it. Tanu Rabbanan, the rabbis taught in an earlier source. Elu Brachot Shadam Shochebahen. Here are the blessings that you bow during. And by the way, this is going to be very familiar because what the Talmud uh, set out 2,000 years ago is still pretty much what a observant davening Jew does today. Ba'avot, you bow in avot, bow in avot. What's avot? It's the first blessing of the Amidah. Um, Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov. That's the ancestor's blessing. You bow in avot, tichila, in the beginning. You know this, baruch atah, right? Uvasof, and at the end, Baruch Ata Adoshem Magain Avraham, and Bahoda'a, 
That's the modim blessing, the third to last blessing at the end of the Amidah. Sorry, the second to last blessing at the end of the Amidah. Also, tchilav asof, like when you go modim anachnulach, and you bow at um, the, 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 the end of that blessing as well. We know that. Ve'im ba'lashuach besof kol bracha bracha. If you say to yourself, you know what? I'm so from. I feel so humble before God. I want to show so much obeisance to God that I'm going to bow not just in front and the end of those two. I'm going to bow at the end of every bracha. At the end of every bracha. If you come to do it, the Talmud says, uvat chila, and at the end of every, beginning, of every, beginning of every bracha, milam dimoto, you teach such a person. Shalom don't do it. The law doesn't require you to bow. So you know, there's no need to bow. There's no need to bow at any of the other places. Amar Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi. Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi said, Amar Rabbi Shimon ben Levi, in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Levi, Mishum bar kapra, so this bar kapra, this is a three-way transmission of material. Hedyot kamosha marno. If you're a regular old person, hedyot, which is probably the word from which the modern English word idiot comes from, um, but hedyot did not mean idiot back then. Hedyot meant a simple person, someone who doesn't have status. A regular person, that's the rule. About twice the beginning of the Amidah, twice in Modim, and that's it. Keep going to the next source, just the continuation of the source. Kohen gadol, but if you are the high priest, besov kol bracha bracha. When the high priest would daven, as it were, it's a tiny bit of an anachronism because we don't really, we're not really certain that there was ever, at the same time, a high priest who was established as a high priest offering sacrifices, who was living in the era of saying davening, because davening kind of replaced sacrifices, but the Talmud sometimes does that. If you were the high priest and you were davening, you would bow at the end of every blessing. So weekday, the end of 18 or 19 blessings. Vehamelech, and if you're the king, at the beginning of every blessing, at the end of every blessing. So you can ask yourselves, why? Why, if it's sufficient for me to bow down four times in the Amidah, a hedyot, I'm a hedyot, I'm not a kohen, I'm not a, a person of, of, of priestly status, why would a high priest have to be able to bow at the end of every blessing and a king at the beginning of it? Right? You could imagine the opposite, right? That the more low you are in rank, the more times you should be bowing down before God. You can see where this is going. Look what Rashi says on that page of the Talmud. Rashi made a commentary not only on the Torah, but also on the Talmud itself, on every, pretty much every line of the Talmud. Rashi says on the phrase, Kohen gadol besov kol bracha, that the, the high priest would bow at the end of every blessing. I love this. I love it. Kol mashahu gadol biyoter. The more great a thing is, tsarich lahachnia u The more that person has to surrender himself or submit himself or herself or itself to the Holy One. If you're starting out as kind of just a regular Jew, and I don't think there's anything regular about a regular Jew, but you understand what I mean, you're already in a place of relative communal modesty and humility in the hierarchy, that four bows for you is enough. But if you're puffed up in place because of your status, because you were born into it as a Kohen, or you were anointed into it, or, or a crown as a king, the likelihood that you're going to need to lower yourself in front of God is greater. 
the greater the thing is, the greater the person is, the more they need to be humbled. Not embarrassed, not uh, emasculated, just remind themselves that they're also just a human being. And vis-a-vis God, they're the same, right? Vis-a-vis God, you and me, I rabbi, you non-rabbi, if you're not a rabbi watching, same status. Vis-a-vis God, you, me, and the president of the United States and the head of the UN, same status. We have different responsibilities, but same status in front of the Holy One. And so if you're living a life where rank or structure has given you a greater sense of self for good reason, that's necessarily in an unhealthy way, it might mean that you have to do more things regularly to remind yourself how similar you are to every other person alive. Now we come to that small mem from the first line. Rav Cook. It says here, Rav 2. Oh, no, on mine it says Rav 2. I, cor- I corrected it before I sent it out. Rav Cook, who is the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of pre-state Palatine and one of the great thinkers and moralists and rabbis of all of the Jewish people. Ha'ot mem ha That tiny mem of mokta that we saw, well, you saw it, the miniature mem in that word, ba'al it's coming to teach us. Ki ha'it lahavut, that enthusiasm, v'halahat, and that fervor, shall adam Yisrael. That fervor and enthusiasm for God that should exist within a Jew, la Torah for the study of Torah, uliyahadut and for Judaism, enam tzrichim liyot boltim lechol ayin. It doesn't have to be visible to every eye for it to be meaningful to God. In other words, Rav Cook might be speaking directly to me. You don't have to sing out Shomer Yisrael so that the daily minioners can hear you sing it in order for God to know, as it were, that you consider God to be the protector of Israel. Your religious ecstatic moments don't have to be outward in order for them to be true, which is often belied by how modern religion is lived out where there's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of peacocks showing their feathers, how we put on our talitot, how well we know certain verses. It's a common thing, guilty as charged. I'm a human being too. I study the sources, but I'm human and I'm frail and I'm flawed. And we all like to feel scholarly and we like to feel that we know the tradition and we like showing it. And the Rav Cook is reminding us that it's not necessarily all a terrible thing, but that not every religious expression needs to be externalized and externalized in some kind of a overdone way in order for it to be meaningful. It can be secreted in your internal heart, which is where your spiritual life is anchored anyway. And going back to that mem, the mokda, which was the larger of the two arrangements on the altar, the one that had the most attention because that's where the sacrifices actually took place, pushed the spice on the side. That large mokda had a tiny mem, almost personifying the arrangement to remind it, do you think you're the big one? You're beginning with a small mem. You need to show some humility. Look at the last source Commentary of the great Rabbi Ari Lucas, whom we love and miss. 
This is a taste of Torah that he wrote to Temple Beth Am some years ago, so you might find it familiar if you are wont to read uh, all rabbis' commentaries and commit them to memory. I love what he wrote here. Flambe is an exciting way to cook. The flames elicit wows from those watching, but the real heat source is hidden beneath the grill and must be fueled and nurtured to cook something through. Likewise, when the coals are first kindled with lighter fluid, the big flames are shocking and impressive, the great ma'aracha. But only once the flames die down and become small, I'm interpolating here, and the coals turn white and the experience is more modest, can the real work begin in the grill. The small mem represents that humble internal heat source. What role does passion play in our religious lives? That's an important question. When I want to sing Shomer Yisrael in that daily minion setting, I'm trying to respond to my internal passion of wanting to sing out to God and to make my prayers come alive. And that's not a bad thing. There should be passion. There should be hit lahavut in religious life. We shouldn't just be mumbling numbly through our religious lives. But what role does it play? Often we come to synagogue and go through the motions, stand where we're told, bow when we're supposed to four times. We give the requisite tzedakah and when asked, when asked, and read the Haggadah at our Seder tables until people lose interest or fall asleep. But the message of the Ola, that sacrifice that's being spoken about in the Parsha, the one that goes all the way up, is that service of God should be done with fiery enthusiasm. The flame is going all night long. Our prayers and other mitzvot should be performed with zest and energy. Yes! We want a community that sings, literally and figuratively. We want a soul that's alive. But the small mem reminds us not to confuse flashy outward demonstrations of piety with a genuine sense of devotion in one's heart. Rabbi Lucas, that is beautiful writing and also so apt from the author because as we know, Rabbi Lucas was someone who had and has tremendous piety with zero flashiness. God asks all of us to bring the fullness of our passions to the performance of mitzvot but to do so privately and discreetly, like that small mem retreating from its place on the fiery altar. I'm still in a bit of turmoil about what to do in those daily minion moments because I'm nearly certain that my motivations in those moments are not to cook flambe, but because by singing certain prayers out loud, it actually keeps the pilot light on. It keeps the heat going. It makes the prayers something I want to return to. And I think of Rav Cook, And most times, Rav Cook enters into my consciousness and says to me, Adam, Rabbi Kligfeld, if it's not what the room wants or needs, and it's hard to know exactly what the room wants or needs, but you can get a good guess, then maybe this is the moment for your mem to be miniature, for the mokda, the greater expression of your religious fervor, to recognize its important humility in the presence of others. Now, I think we need both, my friends. I don't think we have enough of either in religious life, and I'm going to say, and I guess it's somehow easier to say it if I'm not looking at people's faces, we don't have enough of either in our community. We don't have enough recognition of when people are bragging out their frumkite in a way that makes other people small about their own religious lives. We need to do a better job of that. Rabbis and lay people all, all together. A better job of making that mem small so that the quote unquote lowest person in the room, and you understand what I mean, the word lowest, the one who knows the least, 
the one who's least comfortable feels as much on par with those who've been saying this since infancy. We don't have enough of a recognition that our religious lives should be to try to get as many people as possible into that thick center of comfort. And some humility is warranted. And self-awareness is warranted. Awareness of when one's words and one's deeds are coming off as false piety. We need more of that in our community. Meaning not more false piety, more awareness of when it's happening. And we need more heat lahavut and lahat. We need more of the comfortable, healthy, exuberant expressions of fervor for God and for religious life that we sometimes are embarrassed to do because of concerns about number one. More dancing in a circle and getting sweaty. More singing a prayer even when that prayer had not been sung out loud the last 17 times the community met. More of a comfort level to allow some piece of our internal fire to bleed outward, to sweat outward, and to spread a positive virus of spiritual attentiveness. That's my charge to myself to hold myself responsible to try to do both better. My hope and prayer for all of you that we do find the moments where our love for the tradition explodes out of us with a proper and healthy and balanced fervor and that we make sure when it does it's for God's sake not for our own Shabbat Shalom